Hey there, everybody. I'm Cheeto. And I'm Christine. We have a lot in store for you today. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, part of our hot topics Kanye West was hospitalized, Fremantle moved Australia Day, and our topic of the day with our sister, Rumbi, on intimate partner violence and minority spotlight. So, stay tuned. So, Christine, in the shocking news that happened a week or so ago, Kanye West was hospitalized. Yep, he was hospitalized on November 21st after reportedly acting erratic while at the home of his personal trainer. And from then, it's alleged that he went into uh, some psychiatric evaluation and about eight days later was allowed to go home or discharged. Oh, is he discharged? Yep. He's okay. at home now. Yep. Oh. No, I feel bad for the guy. Yeah, I really do too. Because um, did you hear what happened at uh, yep. his concert in Sacramento? Yeah, preceding this. Yep. Yeah, so basically what happened was he did like two songs or something mm-hmm. and then he went on a rant mm-hmm. um, about Beyonce saying something about you know she she wasn't going to perform at the VMAs if she didn't win yeah. a music video of the year and Jay-Z should call him yeah is this also the the concert where he was talking about voting for Trump I think so oh geez yeah so yeah it's a lot yeah. and then th- he then went on to cancel the rest of his 21 uh, city, city tour, tour and, yeah no I yeah. think that was a good call though because mm-hmm. like no one wants to you know, disappoint fans. I don't know if that yeah. was his decision to cancel the rest of the tour or if it was management who were just like, yeah, no, you can't do this. But yeah. some people th- seem to think it might have been exhaustion, you know, following Kim's robbery and maybe perhaps like post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. But I, I definitely think, think so. Mm-hmm. I think it's a lot that's been happening over time. Yeah, no, I definitely think so. Like even if you listen to his album, The Life of Pablo, yeah. He does make some references to seeing a psychiatrist and being on meds, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't think he was meaning it metaphorically. I think he actually has, in the past, had to get, like, some type of help for his mental state. Um, I just feel, like, really yeah. bad for him because that's not... It's not nice, you know, to go through that. And I'm sure he wants to be out and, you know, being productive and not yeah. being in hospital and being paranoid and stuff and having yeah. anxiety. Yeah, no, it must be, like, really difficult. I mean, like, as all the talk show hosts and everyone are saying, Wendy Williams, you know, as much as we like to make fun of him, now this is a pretty serious yeah. situation and we'd only hope for the best. And Do you think it's, like, the price of fame, though? Like, I don't think it's the price of fame exactly. I think it's the environment he's in. Uh, I'm kind of like, meh bit suspicious of like being in the Kardashian environment. Look <laughs> what happened at Lamar. Look at what the happened Kardashians. to Lamar. He loves Kim though. I, he loves Yeah, but Kim. that's fine. But I'm saying all the pressure, reality show, and I think it's just a lot once you enter that world. 
I that's just my book. I'm not saying that's the cause. I think it's just <laughs> built up over time. And then you finally have that thing that pushes you over the edge. Yeah, I think the robbery pushed him over the edge. I don't yeah. think it was so much the And preceding that as well. He's so, not really on the reality show like all that much. Yeah, but just being surrounded by cameras. Yeah, Kardashian fame and all that. It's a lot though. It's a lot for it's it's probably different to what he was experiencing before and now he's entering the fashion world and yeah. I think he's just stressed. Like I yeah. think uh he was on Ellen and he was talking about how he has so many ideas that he wants to put out into the world mm-hmm. and create stuff and he doesn't have the money to do that. We all remember him asking Mark Zuckerberg for money mm-hmm. on Twitter. <laughs> um so I don't know, I think it's that, it's family, and I think he's just having personal issues like with friends and people he can trust because some of his songs on The Life of Pablo allude to him not knowing who his real friends are and Yeah. So you know, we, we wish him a speedy recovery. Yep. So he can get back to making the music. Yeah, we hope he gets well. Yeah, the music is yeah. still good though, so that's that's you don't know anything about it, see? I <sighs> We have to do something I about this. I hear gym music that's pretty <laughs> loud. So I, I've heard a couple of the songs. All right. What do we say, girl? <laughs> okay. On to something that's a little bit more positive. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, Fremantle, this is a city in Western Australia, will be celebrating Australia Day on the 28th of January instead of the 26th. Mm-hmm. Now, to some of our international listeners, this might not sound like a big deal, but I'll give you a little bit of context so that you understand why the 26th is a bit of a sensitive date. So, yeah. according to AustraliaDay.org, the 26th of January is the anniversary of the arrival of the first fleet of 11 convict ships from Great Britain and the raising of the Union Jack at Sydney Cove by its commander, Captain Arthur Phillip, in 1788. So it's basically our version of Columbus Day. And we all know what happened after the Brits arrived in Australia. They um, pretty much uh, slaughtered a lot of indigenous Australians and uh, the enslavement of indigenous Australians. So the 26th of January is not uh, a fun day for a lot of indigenous Australians. So, Chido, what do you think about this? Do you think this is good, bad? Yeah, I mean, people have been protesting on the 26th for quite a while now. So I think it's time we actually make changes instead of just ignoring people's voices, especially the traditional owners of the land. Yes. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. But quite surprisingly, there are some people who are in opposition to Fremantle moving the date. Mm -hmm. And, you know, since we are living in a Donald Trump world, I want to listen. We don't want Australia to end up in a situation like America. No, so we kind of are, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I really did make an effort to listen to the other side and see what they were saying. So I went on to Twitter, and these were just a couple of the tweets that I found of people who are in opposition. So Danny Greenhall says, My God, hasn't the Fremantle electorate voted in some total turkeys now? Changing Australia Day. If people don't like it, move to Iran. Whoa. Mm -hmm. And then uh, another guy, Warney Mate, says, Australia Day is January 26th because this nation was created on January 26th, 
1788. If we get rid of Australia Day, we get rid of Australia. Okay, then. Okay, so like the last tweet, the guy was like, oh, Australia was created on the whatever, on Australia Day, 26th of January, 1788. Australia already existed. I know, because I was just like, okay, fine, we can can just take away its uh, Australia name, give it back its original names, because it was many countries before. Yeah, and it's just like, okay, if if you want to take that argument of like, well, Australia, that's when it was founded or whatever, like, actually, Australia became independent from the British on the 1st of January, 1901. So, if anything, I don't know, it should just be a different date. Is what we're saying. Cultural sensitivity, people. Mm -hmm. Okay, so well done to Fremantle. Yeah. All right. I think that's about it for (laughs) That's What's Up. Uh, We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with our topic of the day. As some people may already know, November 25th was White Ribbon Day in Australia, which marks the start of the United Nations Women's 16 Days of Activism to Eliminate Men's Violence Against Women. So to help raise awareness of this issue, Christine and I figured that we would use our platform on the show to talk about it as our topic of the day. That's right. There are many ways in which men can be violent against women, but for today's discussion, we'll be focusing on intimate partner violence, or IPV. And to help us talk about IPV, we've enlisted the help of our resident dentist, uh, sister, and returning guest, Dr. Rumbi. Thanks for joining us again. Hello. Hello. How are you guys? Good. Good. Nice to be back on the show. (laughs) Nice. So, yeah, let's get straight into it Mm. and talk about intimate partner violence. So, Rumi, can you tell us what exactly is intimate partner violence? Well, intimate partner violence is a term used to describe physical violence, sexual violence, stalking, and psychological aggression, including coercive acts by former intimate or current partner. Mm. So it encompasses quite a lot of different things. It's not just the physical violence. Yes, it encompasses a lot of different things that some people don't even know that it's intimate partner violence that's occurring to them. They just think, oh, okay, this is just normal life. But it's many, many aggressive acts Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. really affect women psychologically also. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. how big of a an issue is intimate partner violence or um, in particular violence against women? How prevalent is it actually? Globally, in 2013, approximately one in every three women experienced physical or sexual violence from an intimate partner or mm-hmm. sexual violence from a non-partner which is really, really quite a lot of women. Mm -hmm. And it's quite um, phenomenal that that's how it's happening. Mm -hmm. And some of these cases are not even recorded because, as I said, it encompasses so many acts that women don't even know that this is happening to them. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing about intimate partner violence, you know, it affects everyone. I think there's sort of like a perception that it's just something that poor people um, are affected by. But... You know, if we recall what happened to uh, Rihanna and Chris Brown, that was intimate partner violence, you know, and also um, not so long ago, Ray Rice, 
Uh, he's an NFL uh, football player. And yeah, there was video footage of him beating his wife or fiance in an elevator. So it's really quite disturbing, you know, because it can be anyone really. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I, yes, yes. Like for me, the, the other disturbing thing is how closed it is from society. Well, how it's done behind closed doors to speak. Mm-hmm. And it's like if we if we're walking around the city and we're thinking every third person you see, hypothetically, third yeah, mm-hmm. third woman you see might have suffered from IPV. It's kind of like mind blowing. It's a it's, lot. You just don't know because people can put on a brave face, go to work, go to social events, but then you just never know what's going on at home or in other living environments. Like as a uni student, college dorms and yeah, that's a it can be quite dangerous place for young women, especially getting started and living in a new environment alone. And yeah, mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. it's also quite difficult to as a woman mm-hmm. to report on it. You know, in this case where it is an intimate partner, you know, so I will just give my take from my personal experience, which is you know it's nowhere as near like bad as what some women go through on a daily basis but uh, you two might recall that I dated a certain fellow who after we broke up he wasn't too happy with the breakup and then um, when I saw him out he decided that he wanted to throw a drink on me oh uh, yeah. yeah yeah so oh, yeah. Oh. I consider that intimate partner violence you know and the thing is like it's embarrassing to talk about it because it I feel like for me at, at that time when it happened to me I didn't want to have people judge my judgment of a character, you know, because it's like, this is someone I dated, you know, so it's like, how can you pick someone like that Mm. to date? You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? So I think a lot of people try to keep Mm -hmm. it on the down low because they're embarrassed and it's hard, you know, Mm -hmm. it makes it harder to treat the problem. And Rumbi, would you know Mm -hmm. like where guilt plays a role in it as in, Perhaps a woman who's experiencing violence might feel guilty reporting. Yeah, a lot of people feel guilty about um, reporting partner violence because it's like, well, sometimes we normalize it. We mm-hmm. just see it on TV. Oh, it's normal for people to be hitting each other. And so really, we don't even find it abnormal when someone says, oh, okay, yeah, I'm, I've been beaten up. It's like, oh, okay, we'll just, you know, it's normal for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I deserved it for what I did. Yeah. But there is no excuse for anyone lifting their hand to you yeah. or threatening you in any form of way. Yeah, no, that's yeah. a really good point on, I think what you're getting at is like, culturally, is this type of behavior acceptable? Uh, what is the cultural context? And I think as Zimbabweans or black Zimbabweans, there was a time, maybe now it's changing, but there was a time where it was sort of like pretty acceptable for mm-hmm. husbands to beat on their wives. It was almost yeah. seen... Like, you know, the woman is just part of property and you can do whatever you want to the woman. All right. So we've just been talking about the violent acts that men might commit. But Christine, you linked us to a video that spoke about um, the psyche of the abusers. Mm -hmm. Could you comment on that? Yeah, so um, in this video, which we'll link in the show notes, they were interviewing two men who were abusive towards their partners. And uh, one of them was talking about how when he was growing up, the way he saw men in his household is uh, what defined a man was that you were in control at all times, especially when you're not Mm. at home. So Mm. he was saying that you need to instill a level of fear 
and the people who live in your household so that you always have mm. control. Mm. Yeah. And I think the other guy was talking about how he had not learned how to express his emotions growing mm -hmm. up as a boy because I think boys a lot of times are told, you know, boys don't cry and mm -hmm. it's a sign of weakness to express your emotions. So he said that he never learned alternative ways to express his emotions. So Rumbi, what do you think about mm. how boys are raised and the impact that that might have on gender-based violence? Well, a lot of men have been brought up in context where they, as you have said, that they don't have a way of expressing themselves. There are these masculinities put upon them by society or where they grow up. Living in that sort of context makes them sometimes maybe a bit explosive inside. They have no places where they can go and talk about what they need to do. And four men are just like, yeah, suck it in. That's what it's like. Suck it mm -hmm. in. But I think that um, men need a place where they can talk about, even about childhood abuse, because it affects how they are going to relate to their uh, spouse, how they've been treated by their female figureheads, let's say their mothers. They need to be able to be able to talk about these things and not be afraid to be open because it affects how they will relate to their next partner, female partner. Everything that happens, uh, most things that happen in childhood also affect how they will relate to women later on. And so mm -hmm. I really think that there needs to be a real platform where men can come as open and be open and not be afraid to speak their minds and to let out all those frustrations that they are feeling, even if it's financial or emotional, whatever it is, they should really have that ability to do that. Should you know thoughts? Yeah, well, you know, I guess my question will be, how are we going to make sure that we get men support that they need? Because in one way, we are looking which we really need to do to support the women. Mm -hmm. But if we really want to stop it, we also need to find ways to support men and change the mindset that society currently has. Yeah, it's a really tough problem to treat. Um, but also, like, one thing that I think is really important in helping to solve this issue, um, or at least to help women get out of situations, is having programs that will economically empower women. Because sometimes mm. women stay because they don't have the financial means. Like, there might be some financial abuse going on where the woman is solely dependent on the man for her livelihood. So... I think it's really important that women are empowered to have ways to earn money um, independently of their partners. One of my friends who is married now, um, she's been married for a couple of years. I remember asking her for like advice, um, relationship advice. I don't really know why because I haven't been in a relationship in a long time. But <laughs> anyway, I was asking her if she has any advice. And she was like, you know what? My mother always used to tell me, always have enough money to get home no matter what circumstance mm. and she's like even mm. if like your partner doesn't know about it just have a li the little secret money. stash yeah, yeah just mm -hmm. in case of emergency so you yeah. can get out of a bad situation and yeah. i'm not advocating for secrets in partnerships <laughs> but <laughs> i think it's important yeah. no isn't that how the model i think maybe for our generation more has changed that like your family or whoever would prefer you as a girl to get your 
degree work a bit and then settle down as opposed to yeah. what it used to be before which is just settle down have mm. your kids and work it out from there yeah now mm. we want women to be you know financially mm-hmm. independent yeah. as well because yeah. yeah now these dudes are out here lazy because they're like ah oh, brat like <laughs> I need a dual income so that we can have a lit life you know <laughs> lit life yeah no, I think Going that's partly islands every weekend <laughs> I think that's partly it as well <laughs> no but I think it's it's healthy yeah. for both people yeah. to have yeah. Yeah. money yeah. Yeah. yeah I think um another thing that's apparently going on in Victoria is that the premier shout out Daniel Andrews has announced the 10-year domestic violence plan. So they've taken into consideration some recommendations that were made. And one of the things they want to do is increase funding that goes to social housing and private rental assistance to keep women and children who are fleeing family violence safe. So I think that's also important because as well as the financial thing, sometimes I think for women, it's like, where would I go? Yeah, so I think that that's very true, especially here in Africa, where um, many women actually don't even know where to go when these things are going. And they also have fear, like, this person is their sole provider. What will they do afterwards? Some of them have dropped out of school, and they have children, and they're pregnant, and they just don't even know where to even start and it's really tough for us to to say, oh, okay, go there, do that. It's it's not easy to come out of a, a very violent relationship mm-hmm. where there's no economic or social backing afterwards. Right. Yeah. And sometimes mm. women are afraid that they'll be killed if they mm. leave their relationship because it's the abuser's release, you know, beating mm-hmm. on the wife or abusing the wife. That's their way of releasing whatever they have inside of them. So... Um, a lot of times it comes with threats of, you know, I'll end your life if I, you leave. Yeah. I wish I had that stat yeah. that spoke about how many women die due to yeah. intimate partner violence. It was, so it was actually high. It was pretty high. It was disgusting. Yeah. Um, really sad. Yeah. Rumbi, do you have any final thoughts? My final thoughts are like, um, I believe that before anyone enters a relationship, they must really try to look at themselves, look where they come from and be able to see if they have any kind of character issues that make them become an abuser or a victim of an abu- of abuse and try to work on them because it's not really, we cannot always say, oh, it's the man's fault or so We have to look inside ourselves as people and be able to see what makes us go into those relationships. I've seen women going from one abusive relationship to another and to another. I've seen men abusing women and saying, okay, that relationship is over, I'm going to another, and still continuing the same pattern. We need to take time as individuals to look at ourselves also and say, okay, what is this issue? And how, if you've been mm-hmm. in a, a family where this uh, violence has been happening to you or, or to people around you, also see if that has affected the way you're dealing in, or how you're mm-hmm. in, in your relationships. And that's what I would like to say. It's like also an individual assessment before you go into a relationship. Love is great, but try to look into yourself and see, are you ready to meet that other person in a relationship? Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. Do you have any any final thoughts? Yeah, just um, the 
UN Women have put out their um, 16 days of activism. If you're following on Facebook, you'll see every day they've got figures and facts about what's been going on, particularly with HIV infections yeah. in young girls and women. Um, yeah, and how now I feel like the UN's shifting from let's stop stop meeting targets okay yes let's keep meeting targets but really let's look up look at sustainable options to better people's lives mm-hmm. yeah. whether it's violence health anything yeah. yeah 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 and i guess for me i'll just say finally if you are listening in australia and you're looking for resources if you are in an abusive relationship whether you're male or female or if you know someone who's in an abusive relationship, you can call 1-800-RESPECT to get some help with your situation. Cool. All right. Up next, we are going to have Minority Spotlight. Thank you so much, Rumbi. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Okay, so we'd like to end on a positive note. Yep, it's been a pretty heavy topic, Mm -hmm. but um, it's time for Minority Spotlight. Yay! And today we're shining our spotlight on Mama Alto, who we got to have an interview with. Yay! Yay! Okay, so please welcome our fabulous guest, Mama Alto, today. Woo! (laughs) For those who don't know, Mama Alto is an amazing jazz singer and cabaret artiste. In 2015 and 16 alone, she has gone to win the Outstanding Access at the Melbourne Fringe Awards 2016, Best International Production at the Chamaco Awards Cuba 2015 with Finnecane and Smith's Glory Box, and has been a nominee for the Artist of the Year at the Globe LGBTI Awards 2015. Please welcome Mama Alto, everybody. Yay, Hello. welcome. Thank you for having me, Cheeto and Christine. It's great to be here. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to kick off the interview, just wanted to find out from you, what inspires you both musically as an artist and also in life? Oh, it's a, such a tough question. Um, For me, a lot of my inspiration comes from the amazing divas of the past, Mm -hmm. um, especially divas in jazz music, um, especially amazing, strong, queer women of colour, like Billie Holiday, like Sarah Vaughan, Lena Horne, Nina Simone, Mm -hmm. um, incredible artists like that who used their, their musical gifts and talents to also pursue social messages. And um, and by performing, they were able in some way to contribute to social change in the world. So that inspires my art a lot. I'm also just inspired by any kind of fearless artists or people who live fearlessly and authentically to break down boundaries. So amazing companies like Finnecane and Smith, who I yeah. toured to Cuba with. Amazing artists like Paul Capsis, like Mia Meow, so many people in the Melbourne theatre and cabaret scene as well. And in my life, I'm especially inspired by, um, I have amazing parents who are just wonderful. They were quite an early kind of pioneering in the 70s mixed race couple. In amongst the circles they moved, they faced a lot of challenges, but they saw them through with a lot of love and a lot of dedication and commitment to each other, but also to social change. So I'm inspired by them a lot as well. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And then, you know, I try to seek inspiration, not just from others who do the same art form and genre as me, who are singers and jazz and cabaret artists, but also in the visual arts, in literature, in history, in all kinds of places. You know, things that when when you see them or when you experience them, it kind of lights a fire in you where you can recognize the humanity in each other. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that lights me. Yeah. It's amazing how art can really do that. You know, it's not just something that is like, oh, pretty to look at, you know, but sometimes, you know, art can really evoke a lot of emotions and convey a lot yeah. of strong messages. Yeah. Well, um, so this year you directed the Divine Femme Choir for Trans and Gender Diverse People Identifying as Femme, which debuted at the Fringe Festival. Could you tell us about what sparked this idea? Definitely. So I have a, I have a great deal of, of friends who are, as well as myself being um, a gender diverse, gender queer person of colour, I have a lot of friends who are trans and gender diverse people who love to sing and who love to sing in groups and who love to make music together and make performance together. But traditional choirs are quite isolating and alienating for trans and gender diverse people because there's a huge emphasis always in a choir, um, in traditional Western music, uh, to separate everyone into the different vocal parts, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, and usually, or high and low, and usually this is done in a very binary, very gendered way that dictates that the the boys have the low voices and the girls have the high voices, and it can be very destructive and very isolating for trans and gender diverse people when they want to be part of a choir and they end up having these gendered binaries and this kind of gender oppression that weighs so heavily on their lives reinforced to them when they are just there trying to make music and and also to access that feeling of community and support that a choir brings. So we wanted to create an environment where trans and gender diverse people um, could do that and be part of a choir without all of that baggage and connotations and oppression that has often marred their experiences, um, particularly in childhood and early teenage years, of gendered binaries which aren't necessary to sing together, but so often come up in choir settings, not through any malice or any designed ignorance by directors and conductors of choirs, just because that is the the music system that they've been socialised into. And sometimes, you know, sometimes people don't question or confront those things that they've grown up with. So we said we'd better start a choir that's just for trans and gender diverse people so that they can become comfortable and and mix with like-minded people who have experienced that same issue um, in choral singing and empower them because everyone, I think everyone has music inside of them. So if in this small way we're able to give them an outlet for self-expression and community, it's really something wonderful. Right. It's really great that you're creating a, a space for mm. the gender diverse people to be able to express themselves musically. Yeah, particularly ex- I think self-expression for everyone needs to be like a given mm-hmm. in life. Like everyone needs to be able to showcase their emotions or have something they can immerse themselves in. That's not just work or school. Yeah, it's so important. 
So you've been talking a little bit about some of the challenges and uh, choral singing that gender diverse people yes. might face, but I was wondering if you think there's been any significant progress made in mainstream media to be more LGBTQIAP inclusive? I I definitely I think there's been significant progress. Yes, but I also think that it is definitely a double-edged sword situation and it's a bit of a a bit of a two steps forward one step back and that's um and it's the same with other marginalized identities including some of my own intersecting identities like as a like as a person of color as well as as an lgbtqia plus person is that it is hard to strive to demand a fair and equal and uh, non-stereotyped representation of ourselves in the media, of our stories, of our lives, of our lived experiences, of our issues, without mainstream media responding in ways that tokenize us and further, further marginalize, tokenize, commodify, exploit or fetishize us. And so it's very difficult because it's this double-edged sword where through the media in various forms, whether it's news, entertainment, television, movies, music, sports, it can be a great opportunity to reach people who might have always considered us to be different from them and to be less than human uh, or to be less deserving of certain rights or certain respects. It's a great way to reach them and show them that at the core of it is a shared humanity. At the same time, if it's handled incorrectly by the power groups within the media, the people who are able to produce and, um, and distribute and fund um, the media and entertainment, it can do the opposite and in fact further stereotype and tokenize marginalized groups and use us for purposes of entertainment right. and exploitation. So it's a it's very difficult double-edged sword because you have, for example, in LGBTQIA plus kind of circles, you, you know, you've had the huge emergence as a media personality and as a go-to spokesperson for trans issues of Caitlyn Jenner. But then you've also seen how that can be exploited in mainstream media. For example, her story was very much exploited to serve at one time a Republican cause and um, by displaying links between the Republican Party and Caitlyn Jenner in the media, they were able to say, oh, look, we have our token trans person, therefore the Republicans are a queer-friendly, inclusive group. Uh, when, if you look at their policies, the opposite. that may or may yeah. not actually be the case. So that's what I'm talking about, it being this double-edged sword. So it's, it's, but it's people... People have to try and very carefully negotiate this and we also have to stake our claim to be content creators and controllers of our own stories rather than just handing them mm, over to true. other people. So it's a very necessary thing to be included in the mainstream media, but it's also a thing that needs careful negotiation and careful, uh, careful considered ideas of representation shy away from exploitation. So you've mentioned about um, how you have intersecting identities. So um, what do you think queer people of colour in particular still have to c overcome in order to have their voices heard? You know, it's, 
it's very difficult because all identities happen at intersections. Um, for queer people of colour, um, like myself, it's, it's interesting because you are in a sense, you're in a sense um, marginalised from the mainstream twice over, um, but also you can see yourself marginalised within those communities. So even though you're a person of colour, you're a queer person of colour um, and that might see you facing different challenges and different receptions from within that community as well as outside that community. And you're a queer person, an LGBTQIA plus person, but as a, as a person of colour within that community, you might be excluded or discriminated against or fetishised or misunderstood in certain ways. So it's, it's very difficult because the challenge is there uh, because we're up against not just cis-normativity and heteronormativity and homophobia and transphobia, but also up against a kind of white supremacist thread that's very common in Australian culture and American culture. And we're seeing more and more of it in the rise of political figures like Pauline Hanson, oh, yeah. like Donald, Donald Trump, Trump and Mike Pence. <laughs> Uh, like Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton. Um, uh, but what, what is alarming is that we can see these threads of white supremacy and white nationalism on both sides of the two-party politics systems in America and Australia. And that's one of the most alarming things. So we're existing at this time where, where we are beginning to fully realise and talk about and empower our intersections at the very same time where it is becoming more and more dangerous to be at those intersections. And um, that, that's the big challenge yeah. for queer people of colour. How do you negotiate your identity at the intersection in regards to belonging to or being excluded by multiple marginalised communities? Mm. So it's very complex and there aren't any easy answers, no. but uh, I always try to approach it through my art just by valuing authenticity, individuality, and loving connections through music between people. And just taking it to that very base level of a shared humanity in art, in love, in expression, and hoping to build from there something that will transcend any kind of divides that are given to us by socialised norms, by prejudices, and in that way, you can slowly start to generate change. And yeah, just to wrap up, in case anyone else wants to catch you performing. I'll be catching <laughs> Where can people find out information on uh, your upcoming performances? The best ways to stay in touch with everything that Mama Alto is doing. Um, I have a website at mamaalto.com, M-A-M-A-A-L-T-O.com or through the Mama Alto Facebook page, which is just facebook.com slash Mama Alto. Um, for people who are interested in the Divine Femme Choir, uh, whether that's that they're interested to see the choir perform or whether they're interested to join the choir or whether they're interested to help us begin our new choir for trans mask and trans masculine people, you can find their Facebook page through the Mama Alto website and Facebook page. And yeah, that's that's the best way to find out things about us. Well, great. I think that was such an insightful interview. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you. Thank you so much.
having me. It was really great to hear from you and, and, and hear uh, uh, that you would like to have me on the podcast. I was like, oh, that's so exciting. Thank you. <laughs> we were excited. Oh, yeah, we were like, whoa. <laughs> she said yes. <laughs> well, that concludes this installment of Minority Spotlight. today's show please hit the subscribe button in itunes and leave us a five star rating as always you can find us on social media twitter facebook soundcloud and youtube just search for sos in Oz. thanks for listening and until next time bye, bye.